everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And today we have one of our biggest episodes of the year. We will be discussing the long-awaited Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese's latest film. I've seen it twice. We got to see it together. I think just to start out, before we get into the description and who's in it, what are your initial thoughts? How do you feel now that you've seen Killers of the Flower Moon? I thought it was a major success. I really loved it. I immediately both wanted to sit with it and go see it again. It's just a massive undertaking of a story and one that is really necessary. These are all things Scorsese has said himself. And if you've heard things about the production and pre-production of this story and how it was altered or evolved throughout that process, I think is really telling and how he told the story and how it's still so timely today. It's definitely one of my favorites of his. It's hard to say because he has so many, but I am very high on this movie and I really, really, really want to go see it in IMAX before it leaves. Yeah. Before I say what I'm going to say, I have to preface it with, I love Martin Scorsese, but I don't love all of his films. I am not one of those people who just will blindly go to bat for him and defend every single movie that he's made because I don't think they are all perfect. And I think that is okay. I loved The Irishman. I love Silence. I love these late Scorsese films. And I also love a lot of the earlier films like Taxi Driver. I love New York, New York, which is an unpopular opinion, I know. But there are some of his movies that don't connect with me. And I say all of this because I'm about to go to hyperbole land. I think this movie is a flat out masterpiece fully. I think it is the most accomplished film I've seen this year. And I cannot stop thinking about it. It has woven its way into my brain in very unexpected ways. And the fact that he created this film at 80, there were images in this movie that felt brand new. Not only like I'd never seen them before in Scorsese's filmography, but like I'd, I've never seen them before in cinema history. It feels, I think, like the perfect combination of all of Scorsese's interests and skills as a filmmaker. It has the slower pace of some of his most recent works and in the way that it ruminates on death, but it also feels like a traditional Scorsese movie in some other parts of it where it feels like his take on a crime epic. And I and I also want to say that what we talk about today is in no way like the full story. We're going to do a deep dive, but there's no way to even scratch the surface on this movie. I think it is just so complex and endlessly rich. I mean, you could talk about this movie for hours and hours, and I'm going to see it again today in IMAX, and I just know that I'm going to come away thinking about things I've never thought about before. And that is good cinema. That's art. Being able to go see something multiple times and get something new out of it each time Not many people can do that. Yeah, it's a masterpiece and one of his best movies. And he has many really good movies, but this is just of an entirely different order. I think Marty is aware of all of these things too. 
about the story, about people going to experience this and potentially not knowing anything about the history of it. And I think his filmmaking informs that too, in that the characters are all there, the story unfolds, but the audience becomes aware of things only as they happen. There's foreshadowing, there are things in his filmmaking and in the camera that you can pick up on, but I think he understands that a lot of people don't know the story. And as you learn about it, the horrors unfold, and there's something in his cadence and in his pacing that tells us he felt similarly too when he made the movie. And I think there's something so powerful in that, and that he's somewhat implicating himself through what happens and he bears that guilt and I think that's part of the power in this story and where the film ends is only a starting point yeah and we will we will get into the ending of the film and I think one last thing just at the top is that this story is not the definitive story of the reign of terror or of what happened to the Osage nation by any means. This I see as a grand stepping stone to future filmmaking. So I understand that, you know, some of the opinions that I have about this movie, not everyone will have, and that's perfectly okay. I don't think that this needs to be right? The definitive take on anything. I think the beauty of what this does is it shows that films like this can make money. They can draw audiences to cinemas. They can be incredibly powerful. And hopefully, given the way that Martin Scorsese chose to tell this story and his history as someone dedicated to film preservation and access via the Film Foundation and the World Cinema Project, Osage filmmakers can tell this story. That's something I think that needs to happen in the future, and that's very clear. And I think that by all means, this is just like a major step forward in filmmaking in sharing this particular tragedy, really. And I think that the ways that he chooses to do that are gripping and very thoughtful as well. So I'm excited for what this movie means to cinema and cinema history and in where we can go in the future. And I think the ending of this film is a clear indicator of that, of how he sees his place in that and in what he wants. So we will get there, but let's start at the beginning. So Killers of the Flower Moon, the description here, When oil is discovered in 1920s Oklahoma under Osage Nation land, the Osage people are murdered one by one until the FBI steps in to unravel the mystery. Interesting description here because Scorsese definitely flips that a little bit. But this was, of course, directed by Martin Scorsese. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Lily Gladstone, Robert De Niro, Jesse Plemons, Tantu Cardinal, Cara Jade Myers, and more. Has a fantastic cast. This had its world premiere at Cannes back in May, and it originally had an early limited release on October 6th that was changed to a wide release on October 20th, which is also being shown in IMAX, and it will later be released on Apple TV+. Plus. So you can watch it um, when it gets to streaming too, but highly recommend seeing this in a theater. It's magnificent and deserves to be seen that way. But I think getting right into the film... 
it opens, I think, in a very beautiful way with a very solemn pipe burial. It's this Osage ritual where the Osage tribe leaders are mourning the fact that these white men have come to town and they've diluted their practices with their own. They've, you know, influenced their children. Their children now speak English. They go to English-speaking schools. They don't wear their Osage traditional clothing anymore. And Scorsese chooses to portray this almost like a funeral. And this film has its exciting moments for sure, but it also does feel like a three and a half hour wake. And that it's a really tough thing to sit with, but I think that's also where a lot of its power comes from. And immediately after that, we see how the Osage got their wealth, which was through oil. And the way that we see the oil bubbling up from the ground, I found to be incredibly profound and almost biblical. It felt like the story of creation, but in a very dark way. I really, really loved how the film opens and how Scorsese is a filmmaker who always, I think, fixates on spirituality and religion. And he puts a lot of care into the ways that we see that on film. And I felt like it was a brilliant way to introduce us to this world. Yeah, that image of the oil and them dancing in it immediately evokes blood. And this is the slow story of what we're about to see. You know, he's great at foreshadowing. And it also brings up similar themes from There Will Be Blood when you have those similar images of oil and that pursuit and the drama behind it, the relationship. So immediately setting this solemn tone mixed with danger really sets you on edge. And then it goes into incorporating black and white and showing us traditional photos of these people and teaching us about who they are. So we learn that the Osage are the richest people per capita, and we get to see all of their traditional garb. We see how they interact with each other, how tradition and culture are so important, and is immediately contrasted when we meet Ernest. He gets off the train, Ernest Burkhart, being the Leo DiCaprio character, and As he's walking to his car, we see all of these white people fighting each other. So I think that's another key moment of seeing how these different groups of people interact and how this is going to be a problem when we get to know them even further. I'm going to jump back first to what you said about the the oil looking like blood and reminding you there will be blood. It's also, though, so celebratory in the moment, which is such a hard tone to capture like the sense of danger but also this elation right because they're clearly excited and you have this Robbie Robertson score which doesn't have any notes of dread in it in this track so it's in knowing that it feels again to bring it to religion like a baptism and Paul Thomas Anderson does the same thing in There Will Be Blood or a very similar thing in There Will Be Blood where There's a moment where Daniel Plainview has oil on his hand and he flicks it at the camera. It gets the lens and it's so cool. Mm -hmm. I love when he does that. And I've always interpreted that as like us getting dirty as the audience with oil, us coming into that world. And I think that 
Scorsese does something similar with that scene, which is which is really cool. But yeah, getting to when those si- I mean those silent film reels, what that does too that I love is that in incorporating the actors who play the Osage people into those recreations of the photographs and of the silent film reels, it incorporates right the actors, modern people into an historical context bending the rules of time so like this story doesn't just take place in 1920 it stretches on right when something this deeply affects people the lasting impacts do not end immediately after the film or after the world of the film or after that time period it lingers on in the dna of the children and grandchildren of the Osage. And I think that was a, that was a really beautiful way that he showed that and blurring the lines of fiction and reality. Just, yeah, again, another profound thing that I found from the movie, but yeah, when Ernest arrives and you're right, the juxtaposition between the ways that the Osage are very quiet, very still. And Scorsese's camera captures them with long takes and little to no score, it's very silent. And then when Ernest arrives, it's just, it's the opposite. I thought of when we talked about the robe on oh our God. 53 episode. What? I'm so sorry. Sorry, Scorsese. But we talked about how with the dawn of Cinemascope, there would be hundreds of people on set extras and they would overflow from the camera. Like it felt like the camera couldn't move quickly enough or the the shot wasn't even wide enough to capture everyone in the frame. And it just brought this brand new life to the screen and to film as a medium. And that's how I felt watching Killers of the Flower Moon in this scene. It's like, there's so much going on. There are so many people fighting each other, driving through the street, talking to each other, trying to sell each other things that the camera, no matter how quickly it can move through Fairfax, through this town, it still can't capture everything. And that's this, right? It shows this certain type of prosperity, but it also shows an incredible difference in the ways that like life is carried on. And it's our first also indication that this story is too big and too grand in scale and scope to actually capture in one film or in one shot or in one scene. It's a story that is so expansive that not even the camera here can capture. And I think that's also a comment on David Graham's book and Scorsese's choice to pare it down, which we can definitely talk about as we continue on. And I think these images that are so rich and filled immediately keys you into the production design and the cinematography Production designer Jack Fisk and cinematographer Rodrigo Prieto, they are especially aware of what they're capturing. And there are so many crane shots of this area in Oklahoma. You know, they filmed on location. We see how vast these landscapes are and the oil rigs, as far as the eye can see. The construction of the town reminded me of Oppenheimer. Build a town, build it fast. (laughs) And how lifelike everything looks and feels. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, magnificent in how they created the 1920s again. Yeah. So you know this, but Jack Fisk is one of my like favorite artists in the film industry. Production designers never get enough credit, but he is a master. 
And this film is proof that you need to give him an unlimited budget because the sets that he constructs are just so creative. Like the research that he puts into this, I can't wait until our contender series when fingers crossed he gets nominated and we can talk about all of his research. How did he figure out what the rules were of an establishment that was part barbershop, part billiards room? Like those sorts of details Mm -hmm. are so cool. And it's what makes the world of the film so lived in and real. So then as Ernest is traveling to his new home, we meet his uncle, William Hale. Call me uncle or king like you used to. And this is the Robert De Niro character who I think in, you know, we recently talked about the king of comedy and mean streets. And I think seeing De Niro evolve and with Scorsese in his works and with him is so fascinating because he is immediately charismatic and evil when we meet him. Mm-hmm. We know something's up, and I think that's the power in his performance. And you can talk about this and how they approached it differently than the book, which is more of a mystery, but I feel like you can see the gears turning behind Hale's eyes in every moment, but there's also a stillness to him because he has everybody in his town on his side. So it's very eerie, but my favorite moment, one of my favorite edits of this movie is when he's talking to Ernest and then he goes, Osage, the finest people on God's given earth. And as he's smiling, we immediately cut to one of the Osage having a seizure and dying. And then we go through this montage with this voiceover of all of these Osage people dying of mysterious circumstances saying there was no investigation into their death and with each passing death the voice so this is molly the lily gladstone character she gets more and more cynical because the images start to become more and more apparent of who is doing the killing that these aren't just deaths they're murders and so the final one is we get of this woman who gets shot by this white man inside of a house like maybe 15 feet away. And then he takes the baby from the carriage and goes back inside. And this is so chilling. And it ties it back to Hale immediately. And there is so much done in one sequence of telling you who is perpetrating these murders, what is happening, and that nothing is being done informs the rest of the film. It is a stunning, simple tactic done by Thelma Schoonmaker and in Marty and with the actors. Yeah. I So going to Hale for a minute, this is a Robert De Niro film, and I love Robert De Niro Scorsese films. I don't love Leo Scorsese films. We can come back to that. So it's kind of interesting that for me, like the combination of the two of them was fine, even though I'm a lot lower on the Leo-led films in Scorsese's filmography, whereas I just, I can't get enough of De Niro. I think he knows how to use him perfectly. And this is, for me, one of his best performances. It's up there with Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. I mean, you cannot look away. It's not cartoon villain either. What it actually reminds me of, the drawing of the character in particular, not just the performance, but the the illustration is of John Huston's Noah Cross in Chinatown. It's this like person who controls everything in 
a particular place. He's usually wearing white or cream. If you notice De Niro's costumes in the movie, he's usually captured in the light in a similar way to that character. He's very charismatic. He's very funny. There's like a, a sinister quality though underneath it all, all the time. And what's so scary about this character too, like you said, knowing that he's behind this and seeing how he manipulates the Osage into saying, you know, like they're my friends and he speaks their language. And that, like the fact that he learns that to control and wield power and he wants to teach Ernest that, who is just beyond dumb, really, like him reading this book about the Osage, he will never be able to have the same type of power that Hale does, right? He's not a king. He's more of a puppet. But the fact that he's committed to saying like, these are the most beautiful people in the world. This is their language. You're going to learn about them. You need to learn their ways. Don't fill the silence with your talking. Like, don't do any of that. Like, this is this is how it is. And then connecting him immediately to these murders is so chilling and completely different from the book, which is a detective story. It's a whodunit. And when I read the book, which I think is fantastic, it's David Grant's like, work of crime nonfiction, I was infuriated the entire book. You learn all of these details and it's very wide in scope as well, but it doesn't reveal everything right away. And that's powerful too. It works as a page turner of a nonfiction book. It reads like a thriller. But what Scorsese does here by revealing the perpetrator right away, it actually makes it, I think, more impactful in terms of what you can do cinematically. I think if Scorsese made this movie like the book, that's a movie we've seen before from him. This is not. This is, I think, completely different. It's no longer a story about discovery or figuring things out. It's a story about what happens when you already know. And when you already know where this evil is coming from, you can then immediately contemplate your own complicity in it. And evil in this film is very banal. It's very ordinary. You talking about these deaths and like the way that this man just shoots this woman and then goes, walks right over to her, takes the baby and puts the gun in her hand to stage a suicide. It is just ice cold. There's no drama around it. There's no stylized violence like his gangster films. And that's what makes it, I think, very different. The, the network of evil in the film is exposed slowly and deliberately. And by having Molly read the names of the murdered Osage one by one, slowly, name, age, no investigation, what this does formally is it calls back to Scorsese's earlier films where a character, usually a man, has a dramatic voiceover. Think of Henry Hill and Goodfellas. Think of Jordan Belfort in The Wolf of Wall Street, talking about how much money he makes, talking about how they want to be gangsters. You know, it's a Scorsese tactic that hasn't been done this way before. And in giving Molly the voiceover, it introduces us to a character, but it also gives her power. She's the one revealing these names. She's the one telling the story. And it comes back at the end in a really brilliant way. Yeah, and I think hearing from Molly 
before we see her, that gives her a power that I think we can interpret as, you know, maybe that she's next or that she's going to stand up to these people. And then once we see Molly, there's a surprising ease with her character and how she holds herself. She's confident, she's calm, and I mean, it's unfortunate that she meets Ernest and they fall in love just because of how different a character Ernest is mm-hmm. and how stupid he is. It's it's honestly horrible to watch. Like, it's it's so difficult to watch, but I have to say, like... She is not the first brilliant woman to fall for someone like that, and she will not be the last. I actually think the fact that she does fall for someone like him, like that makes her, to me, a richer, more realistic character. Because sometimes you fall in love with the wrong person. That is true. That is what happened, right? So I don't know. I think that the ways that she's not able, she knows some things early on, right? The the women in the town and Molly and her sisters, they know that these men are after money because they all have Mm. the money. They know that. And yet they end up marrying them anyway or getting into relationships with them. Part of that is due to the corruption that runs through this settlement, which is that white men control their money. They don't get to just spend it as they should be able to. They have guardians. So these sorts of marriages between Osage women and white men are seen somewhat as advantageous to both parties. And I think Leonardo DiCaprio gives his best performance from a Scorsese movie in this film. I think I prefer him here to The Aviator and to The Wolf of Wall Street, to Shutter Island, to Gangs of New York. But I do wonder if another actor would have been stronger in the role or would have made the relationship make more sense than it might seem at first. Like, I kind of wonder if Jesse Plemons, who plays Tom White, who appears later, would have been better. I honestly kept thinking of two men from history with similar names, actually. If you made this at another time, who would have been really good in the role? William Holden and William Hurt. I don't know, Ryan O'Neill maybe could have done it too. I kept thinking of Barry Lyndon when I was watching this, but that kind of like dopey charm and the the swing from who me, I'm an idiot, to killing an entire family could seem very believable. And I do, I like Leo in this movie, but I do wonder if another actor could have been better here. That might be sacrilegious to say. I felt like he was totally eclipsed by Lily Gladstone in every scene. If she's on screen... I truly, like, I don't want to hear what's coming out of Leo's mouth at all. You want to spend all of your time with her. And that's not the way that you feel about Ernest at all, understandably. But I also believe that this film is a film about contradictions. It's about two things that don't make sense together and that clash throughout. So in that way, I think Ernest and Molly's relationship makes sense. I, and I'm glad that the film chose to use that as a lens or use that as a focus instead of the traditional, this is a story about the creation of the FBI. That was the first uh, version of the script. I think with Ernest, I was very distracted, noticed myself glancing at his teeth, his dentures multiple times throughout the movie, wondering how they look so real 
because they're obviously not, but maybe another actor, you know, I think part of it is, you know, there's so much malice in his character yet. He needs to be likable enough to seem like he could have an interest in Molly. Maybe Burt Lancaster, who I'm not super high on, but could do both. I truly don't know who could do it now, um, but like Joe Alwyn, I don't know. Um, I do think Plemons would have been good, though. The old Hollywood picks, yeah. I think there's a similar quality to how Scorsese makes this film and all of his films, but Jesse Plemons, so we meet him later on. He's the investigator who comes in saying, I solve crimes, but Scorsese initially wanted Leo to play his character. And I'm curious because Leo pushed so hard to play the earnest part that I wonder if it was switched initially. See, and I I think that version of Leo playing Tom White, even in this version of the movie, would have been better. Because if Leo is the Tom White character showing up, what, two hours and 50 minutes, three hours into a movie as the FBI agent being like, here I am, what's been going on? I think that would would have been kind of a brilliant turn would have been really surprising to have someone that famous in Mm -hmm. that part in a further commentary on the police and the FBI and that involvement later on in the story. And I think that it wouldn't have overshadowed Molly's portions of the narrative so dramatically, because when you have Leo in a role like Ernest, that becomes right the center of the movie in a way that I can understand why viewers would have some qualms with it. I personally like don't know if I want Scorsese being the director to tell the story about Osage women, but I feel like, yeah, when I think if you had another actor in the part, maybe it could have felt more balanced in the relationship as opposed to having someone as larger than life as Leo in that role. It does make sense to a certain extent, but I think it would be interesting to consider it with another actor who might've been lesser known. I think it works as a blockbuster in casting Leo in that part. This relationship is interesting because yes, Ernest has all the control, you know, as he gives her insulin and they add a sedative to it to quote, slow her down. And even though he does that, Molly still holds all the power in the relationship. And I think even, you know, as she deteriorates and gets sicker and sicker, one, I not only question how stupid Ernest is, but two, it oddly like highlights the performance of Lily Gladstone and just her incredible acting in seeing this happen. And I understand like it kind of sidelines her, but I still think she's a crucial part, even when she's not there later on. You feel her absence even more, I think. I agree. And that's the power of her performance. I've been thinking a lot about this because you asked me about Best Actress when we talked about Anatomy of a Fall. And when I saw Killers a second time, I just was really, I think, when you've already seen it and then you can kind of see it again and you know what's coming and you can focus more on specific things... When I thought about Lily Gladstone's performance as I was watching it, I was just really astonished by it. It's not just stillness. It's like someone has altered the world of the film and made it their own. And 
She's so smart. She can communicate everything with just a look. And when she experiences pain, you feel that with her. So the sadness of this film is that Scorsese has changed the perspective to be around this love story, this marriage of Molly and Ernest. And in Hale's desire to basically transfer all of the money and the head rights associated with the property that they own in Molly's family, all to Molly and therefore all to Ernest. And in wanting to do that, kills her entire family. And the fact that her husband can supposedly love her and do that to her is one, true, because it's historically accurate, but two, a major contradiction that you have to grapple with as you're watching this film. And as Molly finds out about her sister's dying, not knowing it's at the hands of Ernest, but we know it is brutal, intense suffering. I mean, just seeing her wail and experience the pain of losing her mother, which we have to talk about that scene, losing her sister, Anna, who Cara Jade Myers is a fabulous talent. Also, I loved her as Anna. I feel like she also lights up the screen in a very different way than Lily Gladstone does, mostly just due to the differences between their characters. She's this like feisty woman who wears furs and carries a pistol in her purse and usually has a flask with her, whereas Molly is much more steady and traditional in a way. But seeing their dynamic as sisters it makes it so much more heartbreaking than creating a film that's just this wide swath of murders of characters that you don't know. And so much of the horror of the movie, I think, comes from Scorsese's choice to focus on a central relationship, but also in Lily Gladstone's performance, which I think is just, it's among the best of the year, for sure. She definitely highlights this quiet brutality of the movie, but there are also other moments that are so outwardly brutal, it's hard to watch. All of the deaths, they are stark and clean in a way, but so horrifying. And after Anna dies and they find her and they do this autopsy on her at, you know, later on in the film when it's being investigated and they ask, like, well, why did you basically demolish the body? And they're like, oh, we were looking for the bullet. And it's like, okay, I couldn't have been hiding there, but whatever. But the way that he like, and this is also like, I don't know, a warning for people who are really squeamish, but like sawing the cranium off of her is just so intense, but it's also mirroring what is happening to them. Yeah, the the violence captured is so cold and sterile very yeah it's brutal that's the perfect word for it and Scorsese doesn't shy away from showing it that's really important I think he he wants us to live in that and see what that looks like he doesn't want to hide that and in doing so right it shows the intense levels of corruption right these two doctors who are supposedly right looking for the bullet what are they doing and doing that? Like they're completely mm-hmm. disrespecting her, but they're also ruining any kind of future investigation that can go into it. It's just, again, the layers upon layers of corruption that are explored in this movie, they're done so in ways that are different than the book, but I think that make perfect sense in the world of the film. 
yeah, just another clue that is showing us the chronic genocide that is happening to these people. And I mean, even the Osage are aware of this. But there's a quote that said that goes, white man's money, we should have known it came with something else. And just in all of the turmoil that comes with them being there and their money and their help. But Molly also says it's just like Tulsa. And the fact that she's able to connect what is happening to them to something else in history, it just shows the, I mean, also by the final shot of this ceremonial dance and the circle of life and how history repeats itself and how it's still happening today. I, in doing some research for this and trying to learn about more about these people, I looked up and there was an article and I said, oh, it must have been from back then and like republished. But no, it was like last month where there were nine convictions of somebody kidnapping and murdering in Osage. And this is still happening today. And the fact that they could realize that then, I mean, it's tied to so many other problems in this world and wars happening, but it is very much a cause of people not seeing that this will happen over and over and over unless we do something about it. And it took them spending so much money, going to the Capitol, talking to the president to even be considered for them to investigate this. It's chilling. It's awful. But time and again is what happens. I love when Molly goes to see Coolidge and it's just like a little blip, but she says like, I have to do this. It might be the last thing that I do. Like she knows she's dying and that's what she mm-hmm. has to do. And you're right, incorporating the actual newsreel footage of Tulsa with the earlier created, constructed newsreel footage to look like a silent film reel. That, again, is Scorsese brilliantly commenting on exactly what you said. Like, this evil in this way, racialized evil, that is a web that spans across the country, across the world, and across time. And I think that the way that he shows that and shows Hale in that room, watching the footage, too, of Tulsa, ugh, it's so creepy. It's really unsettling. One thing that I want to mention that I found incredibly beautiful and moving when I watched this film that made me cry instantly was the scene when Lizzie dies. This is one of the most beautiful things that I've seen in Scorsese's filmography. First, we have this owl that comes to visit. And for the Osage, this means that you're dying. It's a sign that death is coming. And we see this owl twice in the film, once with Lizzie and once later with Molly. And even though Molly doesn't die in the world of the film, it portends something else, right? Death in a different way, I think. And maybe acts as a warning. But... The way that he shoots this owl is breathtaking. Also, this owl's name is Eli. Great job, Eli, on your your film role here. But the way that this owl is captured, it's so spiritual and, and very beautiful and unsettling. And I've never seen anything like that from Scorsese before. That feels new. And when Lizzie ends up passing away, The scene of her being welcomed into the next life by her ancestors. There's no sound. The shot is stunning from Rodrigo Prieto. They're vibrant colors. It's just glorious. And then we have that hard cut to Molly and her sisters 
weeping over their mother's Mm -hmm. dead body it is oh my gosh it's just i think it's so so powerful and again he just understands spirituality and death i think in a way that not a lot of filmmakers do all right so we're gonna spoil the ending here and before this ending it does i think turn into a bit of a courtroom procedural in a way with these very out there performances from john lithgow and specifically brendan fraser And that part of the movie, I think, is far less interesting than what's happening earlier. But I also think that's by design. And then we get to the ending, which is, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. It's spectacular. I think it is, it's one of the best endings of a film I've seen in definitely this year. And there have been some good endings this year. I think by the end, you're expecting a bow to be put on this story. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what Scorsese plays with because it's not that. It is this radio show of this true crime podcast. And so it not only brings it into, you know, what we're aware of today and what audiences like to listen to and hear, but that, you know, what happened from this story isn't conclusive and it's not a happy ending. You have all of this and then you have Scorsese showing up himself in an incredible cameo. You know, we talked about that on our other episode too with his movies, but him showing up, I almost teared up. I had the chills. And then he reads Molly's obituary. Prior to this, we heard about the endings of the rest of the characters in the story and how basically they all got off. They either were sent to prison and got off on parole. Like William Hale died peacefully in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. And that's, just the opposite of what you want to hear after watching this movie yeah it's like robert de niro and the irishman it's like frank sheeran just with that door opening the the nursing home yeah i think what is very provocative about this ending is that scorsese is showing us that you know this is how people take in information related to murder and related to crime here it's you know all told by white people Jack White, even, <laughs> which I thought was such a funny cameo. Um, and it's told with this flare. Like you get quick cuts of the noises that they make. They're like Coke bottles clinking together. And it's very playful and free in that contrast to what we've seen previously throughout the movie. And it reminds you that so much of what matters in history and in the telling of stories like these it's just as important, right, who tells the stories, not just what those stories are and how often those stories are being told by white people, by people who weren't at the center of that story. And Scorsese being the one to read Molly's obituary and to deliver the final line of there was no mention of the murders is showing This, again, a further contradiction and a complication, which is that he understands his own complicity in it, right? And in what it means for him to be telling the story for better or for worse. And that is something to sit with, right? Like, that's a big thing that you have to sit with after the movie. You just, and it's why our entire theater after our screening was just sitting there in silence, you just, you can't get up. Mm-hmm. It's it's really difficult to move after those, the credits, because that final idea 
it has no closure. There is no catharsis. And that is so powerful. And again, it reminds you of why it was so important for Scorsese to give Molly that voiceover, to give Lily Gladstone that voiceover, to have her be the one to read those names to us. Because typically those names are listed, if they're listed at all, by white people, by David Graham, by Martin Scorsese. And that's something to grapple with. And great art does that, but it's really rare, I think, today to find art that does that. It just adds this whole other layer that Scorsese is aware of himself, of that this ending is a sensationalized version of the true story, and that for him to be telling it, he knows that he's a part of a version of the truth. And that I think this is why Leo, for me, works in that lead role, because he is this movie star. He is this person who can bring the money. So yeah, it's just the perfect ending that will hopefully lead to other versions of the story to be told, you know, of the truth and of the Osage people being able to counter and add on to what happened, because this is only the beginning from this ending too, you learn that there were all of these other mysterious deaths that were probably not even included in the reign of terror. You know, even the name itself, it makes it seem like the Osage are doing this, which is another side to the perpetration, you know, not shown in a positive light. But like I said, after this, we get the traditional ceremony, and then we have the title card in the Osage script, and it fades away, and you have to just sit there with it and understand, you know, kind of everything we've talked about, that this has happened forever, that you're a part of it, and to see that it's such a detailed, complex envisioning of history. Yeah, those bookends of Osage ceremonies at the beginning, right? It's one filled with sadness and mourning of a loss. And at the end, it's resilience. And that's so beautiful. So I think briefly, we can talk about Oscar potential. We've kind of hit on many components already. (laughs) And I think, you know, like the Irishman, it will be heavily nominated as it should be. It's an even bigger film. Even Paramount was scared with the $200 million ticket on it. And that's somewhat why Apple TV Plus got involved. Well, and Paramount didn't fully support Scorsese rewriting the script. They wanted the FBI version. So Apple coming in was key to him rewriting the script and refocusing the story. And so far, its first weekend out made $44 million at the worldwide box office. You know, everyone's saying it's, you know, not great compared to Taylor Swift's film out. But that is a strong debut. I think it's his third largest debut. And I think being out in IMAX, gaining word of mouth will help this continue on. I think so. You mentioning Taylor Swift's name on this podcast just sent shivers down my spine. But yeah, I think, you know, the performance is really strong. Also had an A minus cinema score. I think the audiences are liking it. The praise from critics seems, dare I say, unanimous from the big ones, calling it a masterpiece, really being floored by it. So yeah, I'm I'm happy with the overall reception as a fan of this movie, but also... You know what happens when I love a movie. It gets nominated a lot, but it doesn't win. So I need to be prepared for that. But I also have to say that I do. I think we're in a really good movie here. So the Oscars aren't 
everything. And I, you know, will love this movie regardless of what it wins or doesn't win at the Oscars. Yeah, I agree. I don't see it as an Oscar Beatty movie. It's a strong movie on its own. You know, saying I think it's going to have a lot of nominations. I don't know about the wins because there are so many strong works this year. Performance-wise, we talked about Lily, you know, going leader supporting. Again, it's just a stacked category. And with picture this whole year so far, I mean, that's how it usually goes too. You know, we're talking about something and it changes as the year ends. But we've been talking about Oppenheimer and Barbie and in director, will Christopher Nolan get his first Oscar? It's just that this is a technically flawless, pristinely made movie. Mm-hmm. But does that mean it's going to win? Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, when <laughs> do they the go Oscars. for movies? Yeah, it's the Oscars. <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, I Oppenheimer, which I also love and you love as well, that movie I do find more likely to win picture over something like Killers of the Flower Moon because this movie is just so, so heavy and sad. And Oppenheimer's not all puppies and rainbows. Like, it's it's really not. It's not an on-paper best picture winner to me at all, especially in the modern era. But I do, I do wonder how that could perform on a preferential ballot compared to something like this, which is, I think, a much more difficult viewing experience. But either film, I think, would be a major change in the type of film that wins best picture, especially recently. So I'm really curious what will happen there. I also just want to say, like, don't count out Barbie because that is a sunny film that is getting a lot of industry buzz. So I'm curious to see what happens there. But I think Scorsese has a big shot in director, especially if we see what the critics do. If the critics tend to vote for him, like if he were to win New York and LA, like the early praise is suggesting, I think he could steamroll or just kind of strong arm the season, really. Because as much as, I mean, I gave Nolan my Oscar for Oppenheimer. I I wonder if the urgency to award him is there. I mean, you could say the same thing about Scorsese. They didn't give it to him for The Irishman, but this is a different type of movie than The Irishman. I think this is his most accessible film since Hugo. And then before that, The Departed. Which one? This movie makes me think of Titanic in its scope and how grand it is, but without a romantic filter. So I think that can work in its favor. I do think this also has a case and adapted screenplay, also shaping up to be a crowded category with Oppenheimer as another big competitor there. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the conversation has been around this as an adaptation, around the rewrites and the process of writing and the differences between this script and David Grant's book. So I think that's a possibility as well. I mentioned editing. I mentioned cinematography, production design. This movie is enjoyable, but it's also so well made. And I think all of these crafts deserve to be nominated as well. I agree. Nothing would make me happier than Jack Fisk winning finally for production design. (laughs) I love him and, you know, all of his work with Terrence Malick and he did There Will Be Blood and he's never won. And I think it would be great if he did for this. I don't think that's going to happen, but, you know, maybe the Oscar gods will shine upon me one time. I love the idea of Thelma Schoonmaker winning again. I think this is incredible work. 
it moves when it needs to move and it slows down when she wants you to feel the pain. And she is a pro. I kind of love also the editing could come down to two women with Jennifer Lame for Oppenheimer being the other. I feel like we never see women win in the category. And if Jennifer Lame did win, it would be cool, I think, to have Thelma Schoonmaker there as our like premier woman in editing at the Oscars and just in cinema history in general. And talking about the runtime, after we saw this, I was like, that felt like the runtime of Anatomy of a Fall. Like it Mm -hmm. only feels like two and a half hours. It's crazy how well it moves. And I think all of her movies and her movies with Scorsese, they move like that. Their pacing is deliberate and continues to flow. And you don't feel bored ever. I agree. And just touching on the performances briefly, I think our three big ones that we have are Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Robert De Niro. But first, do you think that Jesse Plemons can get in? Oh boy. (laughs) He's not in that much of this film. He comes in rather late as Tom White, but you can just always count on him, I think. And I don't know, if they really go for it and really love it, I think it could be could be a good double nomination he was up for the power of the dog i feel like this is a similar not performance or role but if it showed up at the oscars i guess i wouldn't be shocked it's just hard supporting actors really crowded this year because you could also have like double from poor things or you know you have to make room Mm -hmm. for one of them maybe charles melton in may december is a possibility you know there are so many different things that could happen. And then we also, we already have Ryan Gosling and Robert Downey Jr. in the running for Barbie and Oppenheimer. So part of me thinks that this is just a De Niro situation. Also Lily Gladstone, obviously, if she ends up going lead as the conversation has gone, I woke up this morning thinking, oh my God, what if, you know, we have a repeat from a few years ago where a different actress wins at every ceremony. I'm like, what do we do? <laughs> I think it's fun when that happens personally, but I really think Lily Gladstone can win and lead. I know there are conversations about screen time and everything like that, but I don't think that's a valuable way to assess the merits of a performance. And this woman, for me, is a lead in terms of her presence, her command, the way that she just dominates your feeling of the movie. Even when she's not on screen, I absolutely think she can win in Best Actress. I think it can happen. I think it'll be interesting because Emma Stone obviously gives a crazy performance in Poor Things. And there's a lot of competition here. But I think Lily Gladstone can absolutely win. And she should. I'm coming down on it now. And also just another technical, two more technical categories. Um, Jacqueline West, her work on the costumes, Flawless. Go listen to, and we can link one in the description, any conversations that she has with the Osage costume consultants talking about the research that they did. Great work. I hope we get to cover it on our Contender series later. And the late Robbie Robertson did the score for this movie, and I think this is a surefire nomination. He was never nominated, and he's worked with Scorsese 11 times. That is crazy to me. And I love, and part of why I said this reminds me of Titanic is the score. This like thumping, constant score that evokes Westerns, Americana, and the drama, the eeriness of 
the story. There's so much happening in the score, and I love that it fluctuates too, and it also incorporates the Osage and some of their singing as well. It's really beautiful, and you can download it now. It's already out. Okay, so we've talked a lot about Killers of the Flower Moon. Our big question, if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I think I have to give it to Marty. It would be a deserving second. I think how he sculpts the story and all of these performances, it just shows what a master he is. And you saying he's 80 years old and still making movies like this is incredible. I mean, we get to see him on TikTok too with his daughter, which is so funny. But I think seeing his joy and passion in what he does and how he's able to listen to other people and be influenced for the better really shows on screen and in this movie. And the runtime is necessary, all of the components. It just shows that he can really make a movie that will sustain throughout time and just has such a powerful, strong impact. I love that pick. I will be so happy if he wins, director, just candidly. I think this would be a perfect second Oscar in that category for him. I'm so torn here because that's a good answer. I would love for Thelma Schoonmaker to win for this, my beloved Jack Fisk. But I have to go with Lily Gladstone. The more and more I keep thinking about the film, she's what I come back to. It is a jaw-dropping performance in its subtleties. And Mm -hmm. it's the type of performance that doesn't win very often and that we never see. And for me, she is the heart and soul of the movie. And I've heard this from a number of people who've gone to see the movie that despite chatter or people being on their phones during the movie, when she's on screen, something shifts. It's like people stop and they pay attention. And I hope that the Academy pays attention too. I love that pick too. I think we're going to have many options come Oscar contenders time. And we'll definitely be talking about this movie again. But we both highly recommend seeing this in theaters now. The big screen definitely rewards your viewing. It will be on Apple TV Plus, but that date is unknown yet. It will probably be at least a few months. So see it while you can out now. Yes, go see this in theaters. We can't recommend it enough. I mean, it's one of those those movies that you'll, in years from now, want to tell people about the time when you saw Killers of the Flower Moon in theaters. Next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be featuring one of our Patreon After Dark episodes on the Exorcist trilogy. The original one, we also talk about the new Exorcist that is still in theaters, The Exorcist Believer. We had Cody Derricks on for this. This was a lot of fun. The original trilogy, we've already talked about the original film, The Exorcist, but with him we discuss The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, and The Exorcist 3. Yes, so if you'd like to hear us air our grievances on David Gordon Green's The Exorcist Believer, that will be at the beginning of the episode, so definitely tune in for that. But thank you all so much for listening today. If you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Oscar Wilde Pod. And for more bonus content, you can go to patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you very soon. Bye.